Hi, everyone. My name is Vaibhav, and welcome to the Tech Book Club. And today, I am joined by my good friend, Kwaku. Kwaku, how are you doing, man? Doing well, man. It's good to be on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Of course, of course. And Kwaku, you're calling in from New York City, right? Oh, New York. Amazing, amazing. So Kwaku, you are a computer science major from the University of Chicago. You worked <laughs> as a software engineer at Goldman Sachs. And now you're about to start working for Swayable, um, a really cool startup which helps storytellers measure the impact and predict opinion change of their stories. Yep, um, that's exactly right, man. <laughs> how is, my whole bio. I got your whole bio. I did a lot of research. <laughs> <laughs> Why, why did you choose Secrets of Sand Hill Road? I actually hadn't heard of the book before you told me about it. Well, yeah, let me dive into why. Like, so from like big picture, I think it's very in vogue for us to view venture capitalists as like the masters of the universe when it comes to like our, looking at our society. And I guess in many ways it's merited because we see the same handful of names, those venture capitalists behind newest crop of societal power brokers, you know, those new startups that, you know, you can describe so many names to them, like the unicorns or like, you know, Fang, the tech companies, basically, that are changing the ways that our society interacts on a very fundamental basis. And, you know, all the privacy concerns and it's like they can't stop writing articles about these companies, basically. So given that climate, I think it's important to understand what the, like um, these venture capitalists do, like what their incentives are, like what's even at play i know me personally i knew a little bit i knew like venture capital was just at the end of the day it's people who work in finance trying to make money but other than that i really didn't know much about it so i know that one day i want to be an entrepreneur so it's like definitely like coincides with that long-term goal understanding the relationship i have to have with people who are potentially might fund me so the author is Scott Kapoor. He is an Andreessen Horowitz partner. And he basically believes that there's this asymmetry in information between the founders and the VCs. For example, like the VCs have seen so many more term sheets than startups have. Uh, VCs obviously fund many startups and like are just much more experienced with the whole funding fundraising cycle than startups are. And his goal with this book is to give startup entrepreneurs inside knowledge on how VCs operate. So it's actually an incredible primer on the financial and legal side of startups. The topics go really deep, like talk about forming a company, term sheets, splitting equity, limited partners role in funds, vesting cycles, very intricate details of term sheets, such as like preferred shares, aggregate proceeds, liquidation preferences, stock restrictions, all these things that just like completely went over to my head to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I, I was going to ask you like, how much of this stuff did you know before, like, you know, when you're going through your home startup journey? I knew a good amount of it, but I definitely didn't know the intricacies of the term sheets. And I thought a lot of his comparisons with like limited partners and like how they're financially incentivized and what the relationship with limited partners and general partners are, like random things like stock restrictions and liquidation preferences. I had an absolute no idea what those things were before reading this book. Understanding the universe of what's possible, like was definitely like 
a galaxy brain moment for me. I'm just like, I, I don't even know half the stuff in this. So in my opinion, this book is incredibly useful for people considering a career as a tech banker, a tech lawyer, or a venture capitalist. For founders, I don't think it's as useful because I think it's simply more important to build something people want. And I feel like if you do that and have a lawyer and some advisors, the minute details will end up taking care of themselves. Let's, let's hope you're right. I don't know if you <laughs> watched the show Silicon Valley, but like, you know, the, the HBO, famous HBO show where they basically start a startup and they go through the whole uh, process, like from, you know, seed, like from one member of the startup to literally like exit. They needed, like, I think this book every step of the way because they got taken advantage of by multiple VCs. That's a very fair point. I think that I'm definitely coming from, like, a seed stage company, so I don't really have experience, like, doing a Series A, Series B, Series C, and I'm sure that, like, people who have done later stage fundraising rounds, they might have, like, a much different opinion than me, for sure. So the way we're going to do this podcast, um, both Kwaku and I have prepared a few takeaways from the book that founders should be aware of before starting a company. And I think that's the best way to do this book because like, there's just so much, there's all these intricacies and like having, I think yeah, broad, we, strokes, broad strokes. Yeah. Broad strokes. I think we have 10 takeaways in general and like within each takeaway, like we do go into detail to some degree, but We'll just go back and forth, takeaway number one, takeaway number two. And if we have like a mini discussion with each takeaway, that's fine too. So my first takeaway from this book is that startup founders should form a Delaware (laughs) C-Corp. So I made the mistake of forming a California LLC when I first started Simmer. And I actually had to get lawyers to convert the California LLC to a Delaware C-Corp. In order Wait, to receive it, explain what um, a Delaware C Corp is. So, a Delaware C Corp is a legal entity that's preferred by investors. It's preferred by almost everyone in Silicon Valley, and it protects yourself from legal liability. And it's very convenient. It's like easy to div- divide co-founder equity. It's a simple. Pro- there's a simple process to issue stock options. And there are a lot of tax benefits when you sell a business. And I think most importantly, Delaware developed a series of tax and regulatory laws and court systems that became advantageous to corporations. And it's more advantageous in Delaware than literally anywhere else in this country, um, leading it to become like a very favorable place for companies and investors to incorporate their companies. Yeah. And I would just add that like on a broad level, you form a corporation, so then you personally don't have to carry the risk of the company. So like when it goes bankrupt, you don't go bankrupt. Right, right. Yeah, so my take, my first takeaway, so takeaway two, there's never been a better time to be a startup founder. First off, capital is cheap and abundant. There is more capital than stars, frankly. So making a startup market, VCs must invest LP money. An LP is literally like insurance company or not-for-profit university or sovereign wealth fund. 
And what they do is they allocate certain parts of their endowment into venture capital with the hopes of, you know, seeing a certain type of return on that allocation so that they can fund their operations if you're a university or just have enough money to pay out your claims if you're an insurance company. Simply like the market has become a global market when it comes to the number of like limited partners that LPs that need to invest their money. You see more and more company uh, countries just building sovereign wealth funds. I know, for example, I'm from Ghana and they are trying to start their own sovereign wealth fund, for example. So the market for LPs is larger. And the thing about this is because it's allocated the money, they literally have to invest it. They're never going to pull out, pull their money out, no matter what happens in the market of startups. A million startups could fail, and they still have to invest. Second off, and I know Vibob, you can speak to this, but accelerators have been huge for startup founders. Y Combinator is the most um, famous one, and I know you went through it, Vibob. Basically, on a high level, it teaches you how to be a founder and how to start a company in that they tell you all the things that you don't think about. Uh, you want to go in depth and talk a little bit about just um, an example, maybe an example or two of things that you never would have thought about that you learned at YC. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It's tough to think of an example right off the top of my head, because I'd say almost everything that I know about startups like came from YC. Um, but I generally agree with basically everything that you've said, like definitely capital is cheap and abundant. Um, it's not like ridiculously easy to raise. And there are a lot of startups that do try raising and like, they're not able to, it just seems like a better environment than it used to be. I think going back to YC for a little bit, like YC really taught us, the fundamentals like they taught us like how to run a fundraising process they taught us like how to pitch to investors we had weekly office hours where we met up with other startups in our cohort and like basically discussed our companies we had individual office hours with like yc partners where they would give us like one-on-one -on -one advice and like i think the most important thing about yc is that these yc partners have seen so many startups and they're able to see so many startups succeed and they're able to see so many startups fail. So after seeing so many startups, they're able to pattern match based on the ones that succeed and based on the ones that fail. And in that way, they're able to give you like very, very specific advice because they've seen everything before. So I would say like their advice is like better than like a very successful startup entrepreneur like Jeff Bezos or you know, Mark Zuckerberg, because Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos only have a sample size of one. And even though their experience is very incredible, like they've done so much and like, I would definitely take their advice any day. Like the fact that these partners have seen like hundreds and hundreds of startups succeed and fail, like that's sort of like where their advice comes from. I think the other really important thing about accelerators, and this is not just unique to YC, this is, a, this is across the board with all these accelerators, is that like these accelerators have sort of created communities of founders who share knowledge, support each other, and help each other. And the book talks about how before accelerators, founders were like quite dispersed. Um, like you didn't really have communities and founders didn't really have this 
commune of knowledge that they could sort of tap into. But because of accelerators, there's like a reduction in knowledge gaps and there's communities of founders who like hang out and support each other. And like that was, that didn't exist before 2005. Yeah, facts. Something else that didn't exist before 2005 was the ability to easily scale your tech corporation or business. So basically there's been a decline of costs to scale tech company like AWS, for example, is, uh, is software as a service cloud computing. Um, and they can manage everything from your databases to like your, um, routing or like, you know, all the basic infrastructure and middleware that make, you know, an application run on the internet, AWS can service for you. That's been huge. Even if you don't choose to use AWS, there are players in the market that basically just lower the cost. And back in the days of the, the dot com, there were all these startups buying physical servers and buying space to hold physical servers to hold their data in a certain room and buying air conditioners to make sure that that room doesn't overheat. That would eat into the capital that they end up raising. Now, me on my laptop, I could start a startup tomorrow and not have to worry about any of that. And until I hit Amazon free tier, like, which is <laughs> the minimum, like Amazon gives you a level of um, service before you actually even have to pay a single cent. I could build a proof of concept. So right. I think that is also huge. So I've read like a couple of books of startups pre 2003 pre 2004 and like a couple of startups a couple of books of startups after like the mid 2000s and there's a pretty big difference between how much the startups before the mid 2000s raised and the startups after the mid 2000s raised like Netflix had to raise 2 million dollars and hire a couple of engineers to just get started whereas like Airbnb only needed one engineer for the first two years of this company, you know? So there's like definitely a pretty big difference in like what you need from engineers and like basic startup costs. And that's just contributing to making, to creating a startup and making it easier to start a company. I also have an interesting story. So the founder of Squarespace, he, he was, I believe a 2004 company. Like, so back then he, had to, he moved, he was a University of Maryland um, student. He moved to New York to buy um, like, you know, server space from somebody um, in the Wall Street area. And there was one day where his whole system went down and he physically had to go to the server space that he bought and figure out what was going on. Now, if I use AWS or another thing, my server could be anywhere in the world and if it goes down there's already a backup provided for me for free that's gonna have my data that's sprung back up so takeaway number three make sure you and all your co-founders have a founder vesting cycle so this basically means that you do not receive equity right away so if you have a four to six year vesting cycle you would receive your equity within four to six years. Um, and I think the standard is a four-year vesting cycle. So every month you get one out of 48 of your equity. So 
the vesting cycle ensures that founders remain motivated and don't suddenly leave the company with a significant amount of equity without earning it. And every single company that I know has like a four-year vesting cycle or a six-year vesting cycle. And like, I think it's just the standard thing. So it protects the company from a bunch of different things. So the difference between a four-year vesting cycle and the six-year vesting cycle is that the four-year vesting cycle is better for co-founders because that means that your equity will invest at a faster rate. The six-year vesting cycle is better for investors because it ensures that co-founders stick around for a longer time. And I think there are a couple of people in the startup community that argue that founders should have a six-year vesting cycle. I think Sam Altman is one person in particular who I've seen argue for a six-year vesting cycle. And I think they make that argument because companies are taking longer and longer to go public. Like many startups, many successful startups end up taking 10 years to go public. So that's why they argue for like a longer vesting cycle. You covered it. Let's do takeaway number four, Kwaku. Yeah, so takeaway number four. There's a trade-off between raising capital and the control that you hold on to as a leader in your company. So when you decide to raise funds to do something, you know, do a corporate action, right? Like raise funds so you can, in, in Tesla's example, Tesla raises funds in order to build more cars, like to start that production cycle. You need capital in order to put out a new product in many cases. So when you decide to raise capital through venture capital, that means that you are in exchange for the funds that you receive, giving away part of your company. So by virtue of that, you have less of your company, you control less of the company. Now that doesn't matter that much until you have the situation where you've given away enough of your company that you, that if everyone else decided to vote against you on a decision, that they, they would carry the vote. Now, this, this seems like nothing, but when things go wrong and you have one vision and venture capitals have another vision, this creates some tension. And this typically happens when your company's not growing as fast as your investors wanted to. And that could really mean like a lot of things. Your company could be like turning a profit, but if that profit is stagnant, your venture capitalists won't be happy because of their relationship with limited partners. They need, they promised limited partners that they would receive a certain return. So they're banking on your company growing at a fast rate so they can realize that return. So if your company is just growing at a steady rate or not even growing at all, but still profitable, you're not fulfilling that. And so there will be moves that the venture capitalists will try to pressure you into to get, because they think your company will grow off these moves. Whereas you, the head of the business, the one running a day-to-day might not see it that way. I think an interesting thing to note here, though, is that not every um, business needs venture capital. There are plenty of you know, startups that function just fine without venture capital. You can raise like, from your friends. You can raise from revenue in previous quarters, like you know, just taking that revenue and investing it back into the business. Or you could raise through debt, like, you know, just saying, which, which is essentially 
taking out loans from either a bank or from people in exchange for like paying that back with interest. All of those ways allow you to keep full control of your company and not be beholden to the incentives of that relationship between venture capitalists and limited partners. I also want to mention that not every venture-backed business is a technology company. So meaning that you don't always have to scale in the typical Facebook, Airbnb, like Uber kind of way in order for venture capitalists to, you know, be happy with you and the way your company is growing. I think at the end of the day, they just want to see, you know, the rule of thumb is 10x returns, but really just like, you know, a high growth rate. Right. I had a friend from a YC company who had already raised like a good amount of money before entering YC. And during demo day, they were really worried about over dilution. Like they didn't want to raise too much. They didn't want to raise over a million or maybe a million and a half because like they didn't want to further dilute their equity. And when you're thinking about equity, not only are you losing control if you raise more and more, but you also lose motivation because if you have 60% of equity and over time that goes down to 20 and then 10 and 5%, like the more you raise, like your equity gets reduced really, really quickly. And if you only have 5% of the company, you no longer feel as motivated. Um, and yeah, like, just like, like, too, intrinsically, like you just don't feel as motivated and like, that's like a bad sign too. It's like, what if you win Olympic gold, but then you have to give your medal away immediately? <laughs> exactly. And to your point about the different ways you can raise capital, at the end of the day, revenue is the best source of funding. And if, I mean, every entrepreneur's goal should be to start a company without raising it, raising a dime. That would be, that would be it magical. Less stressful, you know, less cooks in the kitchen means that your decision's final. Like, I feel like in many ways, like having a venture capitalist is like, it's not exactly like having a boss, but it's kind of like having a boss. Right. You have, right. You have to just care about someone else's like, you know, whims and incentives. All right. So takeaway number five, venture capital is a zero sum game. So this was something I found fairly interesting from the book. If two funds want to buy Apple stock in the public markets, like both funds can buy Apple stock. It's obviously possible that one of the funds is so large that its investment may affect the stock price. But like regardless, both funds have the opportunity to buy Apple stock. In VC, that's not necessarily the case. Startups have limited funding rounds and often investors get excluded from a deal. And this is even true for early stage seed startups. There are so many startups that had more, have more fund, funding available than room available on their cap sheet. And what they would do in this situation is like they would either increase the round, raise the valuation, or simply say no to investors. And there's really no right decision in that situation. Like increasing the round further dilutes your equity. Raising valuation will upset some investors. And obviously saying no to an investor is difficult because they want to be on your team, right? So it definitely doesn't happen to most startups, but it definitely happens to some, regardless of stage, C stage, late stage, everything. 
I think an interesting thing that you just brought into that is that, like, you know, the idea of like that diluting equity and having to say no to investors. It's always an asset um, when you have an investor on board because they're not just giving you money here or they're actually trying to also give you expertise to be able to lift you into that high growth rate for your company. So, but they want to be properly incented to do such, to do the research, to do the hard work, to be present at your board meetings and your staff meetings and to provide resources. But for that, they'll want equity. So if you say yes too quickly to too many investors who can't provide the right expertise through their backgrounds and experience that will help jettison your company forward, then the right like key piece will, might come along and you don't have enough equity to give them for them to be interested. I think right. Shark Tank actually does like a good like job of like showing people exactly this at play is like Mark Cuban will be like, oh, you're a tech company. Like I, I've worked with tech companies. I can scale it. Um, there's, there's that one girl who has like all the um, connections to QVC. So if you're like a QVC style product, then you want her on your team. Yeah. On that note, you also want to be wary of bad investors, like investors who give you the money, but then also like just suck all your time, like pester you all the time, email you all the time, call you all the time, basically yell at you all the time, ask for your their money back. There are bad investors as well, of course. I guess the boss analogy plays right into that. Which analogy? The boss analogy plays right into that. What's the Boston? Yeah, of like a venture capitalist kind of being like your boss sometimes, right? Because they have equity in your company, they have control. They, you've somewhat given them the right to inquire as much as they ch- please about your business. Right. So it's much similar as like a boss has a legal right to inquire about what you're doing on the job. Right. Yeah. So takeaway number six is that the firms at the top stay at the top. This kind of ties into how venture capital is a um, zero-sum game, but even more so. There are only a handful of venture capital um, companies that everyone knows of. And those are the ones, and you know of them because they've invested, they've invested in all the most successful companies. The thing is, because they've invested in all the most successful companies, they keep getting access to the, the most promising companies. That's because the only real positive signal of a good venture capital um, fund is their previous previous funding decisions. If they're making a killing, more limited partners will want to invest with them and they'll just take on more money and make bigger funds and like have multiple funds out there so they can take that money. And also if they've been proven to take companies public, more startups or take, take companies and give them successful exits, more startups will want to like, you know, have them on as investors and have them lead rounds of investing and just take their expertise because they think that would be a good signal on the merit of their idea and their startup, as well as obviously having the reputation of jettison, jettisoning their business forward. Right. Yeah, and that that just contributes to making it difficult for new funds to compete. Like if startups inherently prefer the Sequoias and Andreessen Horowitz of the world, then those are the funds that are going to attract 
the equity or like the startups. And those are the funds that are just going to continue to be the best performing because like they're going to naturally attract the best startups and there's not an infinite round, right? There's a limited round. So like the best startups will give equity to the best funds and the funds will remain at the top and will essentially remain entrenched. And it makes sense for the founders. Like they want big name accelerators and funds backing them. They take pride in being funded by the Sequoias of the world. So definitely. Makes I think sense. an interesting um, example of this playing out in real life is literally like SoftBank and their reputation. Before they were known to be this gigantic venture capital, taking these huge wild bets on big companies that hit it big. I believe they had an investment in Uber. And then WeWork came along and it was, and I think part of the reason why WeWork had that now infamously large valuation was because they were backed by SoftBank and SoftBank kept this reputation of not letting their big bets fail because they would just influx their big bets with more cash. Now SoftBank has taken a huge hit because WeWork took a huge hit. So at the end of the day, venture capital is a lot of hype. A lot about reputations. Yeah. Takeaway number seven, batting average is not a good way to assess venture capital firms. So what I mean by batting average is like the percentage of investments that are good investments. So it doesn't really matter what percentage of your investments are good investments. What matters is how big your winners are. So I think the best example of this is Excel. Excel, I don't know how to pronounce them. I don't. <laughs> I, think, I think it's Excel, like Excel Partners. Okay, Excel. So Excel invested in an early round of Facebook, which valued the company at around $100 million. And that investment gave them nearly a thousand times return because Facebook's valuation is now around $100 billion. So the main point is that it doesn't matter at all how the other investments in the fund perform. Like, they could all be duds. They're just rounding errors. Yeah, exactly. Or, or like, even if they're somewhat successful, some of them are somewhat successful. Like, either way, those investments are basically rounding error relative to the performance of Facebook stock. So the entire point of venture capital is to find the next Facebook, Airbnb, or Uber. Like, your other companies in that fund, like the duds or even the somewhat successful startups, like, they don't matter at all. They didn't matter at all for Excel. Exactly. It's kind of like you just got to catch the big one or don't go fishing at all. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Takeaway eight. VCs are not out to get you. They want you to succeed as a founder. I think there's this like impression that venture capital is like ruthless. And you hear all the stories about like, you know, founders who, you know, raised all this money and then they couldn't deliver. And so now, you know, their dream is dead or you know, famously, like, Steve Jobs was kicked out of Apple, you know, and they, the venture capitalists and investors, you know, installed a new CEO on the board. But basically, it's just a matter of aligned incentives. And I think this is why it's so important, to, like, as an entrepreneur, to eventually understand the incentives that the other people on your board, venture capitalists and investors, have in the makeup of your company. Incentives especially get misaligned when your company starts having that 
you know, beautiful growth rate that makes it on its way to being the next Facebook or Uber or other successful, like, you know, startup companies. Then when you, you know, stop making money or you're making money, but not at a rate that is increasing, you have all this pressure from venture capitalists to juice up that rate again, get back your growth rate. So you want, so in order to have more room to make the right decision at the time for the day-to-day operations, you feel incentive to start, you know, start hiding numbers from your board, you know, because at the end of the day, they'll probably hone in on the numbers. When you know the number, the story behind the numbers, even when it's not so salient to tell that story, you want to make sure that you are projecting a story that allows your investors to keep confidence in you. So you move on. And then you, there, there's no problem with venture capitalists. When you come across a point that you're not going to be able to project that story. So you need to then decide to pivot, which is a very co- common thing in startup lingo. I think everyone has heard pivot before, but it's basically like move the company in a direction that allows you to fight another day or to take the funding you have and return to that growth rate. Right. Yeah. I, I think in general, like there are definitely aligned incentives between founders and VCs. And there are times where like VCs like want the CEO out. That happened most prominently recently with the Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick. In any case, like I, I think back to Steve Jobs and how he got replaced in the early 80s um, by, a, I believe, like a Pepsi CEO, former Pepsi CEO. I think there's like definitely a difference in culture between Silicon Valley then in the 80s and Silicon Valley now on how they treat founder CEOs. I think VCs now definitely want to keep founder CEOs and it's like a typically a bad sign for founder CEOs to leave. However, in like the 80s, 90s, people sort of wanted to eventually get rid of the founder CEO who's typically more of a you know, programming geek and like replace them with like a person in a suit, someone who had like corporate business experience. That was like the way they thought in the 80s and 90s. And now it's like, we got to keep the founder CEO. Like we want that person to be running the company for life. A good example of that is Mark Zuckerberg who started, he founded Facebook when he was 19 he has kept control all the way. I think he's in his 30s now. And I believe Mark Zuckerberg will continue to lead Facebook till he decides that he's on to something else. Right. And a lot of times these founder CEOs structure the equity in the set in a way to not dilute their voting rights. So when they have negotiating power, basic, they are able to retain control, which I think happened with the Google founders. Takeaway number nine, lemons ripe early. I absolutely love this. So according to Scott Kapoor in this book, he, according to him, you will know the shitty companies in your portfolio pretty quickly. It's the ones that are successful that will take a while to figure out if they're going to be like truly, truly, truly successful. Paul Graham gave a talk last year and I asked him a question from the audience. I asked him like, when did you figure out that Airbnb was going to be a billion dollar company? And he told me 
that he didn't really know that they were going to be a billion dollar company until they reached a half billion dollar valuation. He knew early on they were incredible founders, but even he couldn't tell that they were going to be this big until it was almost certain. And then on the other side of things, like, I don't know if the partners at YC will ever admit this, but I think it's possible that they can tell which companies suck within the first few weeks of the batch. Yours must have not sucked. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that off the record. But like (laughs) with bad founders and like you can tell in group office hours and when you interact with people, like it's kind of glaring and like you can see they're just not executing as well. And one of the things that YC partners tell you is like, we can tell the good founders from the bad founders by a simple proxy. And that proxy is if you go to a meeting and you talk and you basically come up with a problem and you discuss the problem with the partner, really good founders will have solved that problem by the next time they meet with the partner. And the next time they meet with the partner, they're discussing a new problem. Bad founders, on the other hand, go to YC partners with a problem. And the next time the founder meets up with the YC partner again, they're stuck on the same problem. They haven't moved on to a new problem. That's like a good way to tell between bad founders and good, good founders. And like, I think when the author says lemons ripe early, I think investors can generally tell which of their startups, which of their founders are bad early on. I like how you said move on to a new problem because it's good to have problems and have them come up and seek that advice from, you know, YC partner, accelerated partner, um, even venture capital partner. But what's actually bad is when it's the same problem over and over again. If you keep getting new problems, that's actually a really good sign. It shows that you're progressing in the business. Right. I think that a really good example is like, you know, when you're like watching sports and you're, you know, you really take on to this young prospect, right? And you want to see them grow throughout their career. If they still have the same problems, like day one in like year four, then you start to wonder how good they actually are. Right. And I think Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball are two. (laughs) (laughs) They definitely still have the same problems they did from day one. On to takeaway 10, our last takeaway. Venture capital is a completely different type of investing. So in the investment landscape, right, you have like stocks and you have hedge funds and you have like the leverage buyout market. There's and a lot of other like financial legalese that despite my fact, the fact that I worked at Goldman, I have no idea what it means. But basically venture capital is different from all of those because of the amount of return that you can get. And that's like highlighted by, again, like, you know, the previous take we talked about where it's not about making money necessarily, but it's about the growth rate. It's about getting that home run hit rather than, you know, having a few companies that together, like gave you a tidy return. And let me provide that with example. So Yale invests about 15% of their um, endowment over the last 10 years into um, venture capital. And they saw 70% return from that initial investment. That's actually unheard of. It's insane. And so that allowed Yale to 
you know, have money to build new buildings, to pay new staff, to support staff research that led to Nobel Prizes. It's a lot of, it's a lot of good that it brought, like, you know, Yale University. And so when you add up Yale to all the other types of limited partners out there, universities, insurance companies, not-for-profits, you can see how venture capital really, like, allows... It's not just like, you know, this cultish, like tech bro kind of thing, but it really allows for us to solve problems and to run economies and help the world progress forward. Right, right. This has been awesome. Anything you want to add, Kwaku, or do you think we summarized? It was being on the show and, uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck in uh, rounding out your tech book club. (laughs) Thanks, Kwaku, and I'll see you in a few weeks. Yeah, see you. Have a good one. Awesome. Everyone, this has been the Tech Book Club. Thanks for listening, and hope to see you next time. Cheers.